Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Future You Forum. Uh, this week's topic is the quantified scholar. I'm Zach Kaiser. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Art, Art History, and Design here at Michigan State University. Um, and we are joined, excitingly, today by Professor Juan Pablo Pardo Guerra, uh, who is, I, I'm a big fan of his Twitter account, first of all, so you got to follow him on Twitter. Um, but uh, his work has been inspirational to me uh, as my research has engaged with some of the same topics from, from quite a different angle. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick intro to, to him and his work, and then uh, we'll get things started. So after training as a physicist at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, Professor Pardo Guerra did his graduate work at the University of Edinburgh, completing the PhD in Science and Technology Studies in 2010. Before joining UC San Diego, which, which is where he teaches now, he served as an assistant professor in sociology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. At UCSD, he is a founding fac faculty member of the Halijilu Data Science Institute, co-founder of the Computational Social Science Program, and associate director of the Latin American Studies Program. Uh, he has a prolific publication record with all sorts of really cool uh, stuff, and um, so I'm really excited to have him. And as our discussant today, uh, we are joined, uh, as always, by Rube Martinez, uh, professor of sociology and one of the founders of the Future You Forum series. Uh, Ruben has always been a mentor and a, a big fan of, of uh, supporter of my work. And so I'm, I'm so glad to again be joined uh, by him this week. Uh, so we're going to sort of do the usual thing that we do here for folks who have tuned in before. Um, professor Pardo Guerra is going to uh, give deliver his remarks uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 some odd minutes and then Ruben will respond. Um, and then after that, we'll open it up to folks in our Zoom room and we'll have a, a brief conversation um, to follow that up. So uh, yeah, I think that I think that that's all for, for me. I'd like to turn it over to uh, JP. Thank you so very much, Zach. I want to thank you, Frank and Ruben for organizing this. This is a huge pleasure and an honor and I'm really excited to share this project on the quantification of scholarship and, and its effects on how we produce knowledge and how we inhabit these spaces in academia. So I'll start sharing the screen now um, and we can go through some of these topics. So what I'm gonna talk about briefly is a project that will come out as a book next year in spring of 2022, uh, which is The Quantified Scholar, How Research Evaluations Transformed the British Social Sciences. And the basic uh, issue or the basic problem that this is tackling is the fact that in our professions in acad academia today, metrics are everywhere. Uh, they come in the form of citations, journal impacts, um, H indices, the sort of amount of our extramural grant income, all these different numbers bear upon our professional lives in different ways and affect slowly how we produce knowledge. Indeed, slowly and through the last couple of decades, they have become increasingly a part of the reward and punishment systems that are used within academic institutions to promote certain scholars, and um, make invisible the work of others. So how do these things work? How is it that metrics are transforming fundamentally the nature of academic work? So what I do in the uh, quantified scholar is I look at how these forms of quantification are 
changing the nature of scholarship in itself. And in addition to a claim about what this is doing to knowledge, to the type of articles, papers, books, et cetera, et cetera, that we produce, it's also a study that tries to tackle this issue of how we collectively build academic institutions. At the core, everything we do in this profession relies on being on the shoulders of others, on the shoulders of giants, of colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. This is the product of communal collaborative work and how impacts bears, uh, how metrics bear on this collaborative work is something that I try to get at with this particular book. Now, there's a really fantastic case study for this, which is what I do in uh, the Quantified Style Scholar, what I look at in this book, which is nearly a laboratory case for the use of metrics in transforming knowledge. And this has to do with um, the United Kingdom. Why is the UK such an interesting case study? It is really fascinating because unlike the US, which has this very complex higher education ecology with liberal arts colleges, private institutions, public institutions of different sorts, the UK has the same type of institutions throughout the entire sector. They are all public universities, whether it's the prestigious and medieval halls of Oxford or the newer halls of places like Leeds, for example, or Sussex. Everything is organizationally very, very similar. They have converged over time to the same type of models. And in addition to that, the funding structures that they respond to are the same. Everything is centralized at the level of the sort of British state. So this is a really interesting model because everything acts in the same way on every single institution and we can study what happens to the country or the scholarship produced in the United Kingdom as a whole over time. And in particular, the UK has had over the last 30 something years, a series of interventions that have fundamentally shifted the way scholars produce knowledge. Starting in the 1980s with the forms of austerity that were introduced by the Thatcher administration, um, the sort of academics and science policy groups in the country started incentivizing selective funding. By this, they meant putting money in those institutions that would use it best. Now, what is best? Uh, they defined this idea of excellence as what was the center of or the sort of attractor, the key thing that should motivate investment. Um, those institutions that demonstrated to be excellent in particular areas would receive more of the special research funding that comes from the central state in order to do their sort of research. Those who were deemed to be less excellent or not excellent at all would not receive funding. This, this sort of model of funding and research selectivity has evolved over time from the first exercise in 1986 to the current one, the results of which will come out next year. And that is all again about finding excellence to determine where funds go. So it's a quantification of excellence in a sense and of excellence of scholarly work. How does this particular form of quantification happen? It's actually really complicated, so I'll try to make it as simple as possible with a quick visualization. So imagine you have different institutions. In each of those institutions, um, scholars will produce uh, different types of outputs, uh, of research outputs, things like books, articles, et cetera, et cetera. 
every five years or so when there is one of these exercises, uh, scholars in those institutions are asked to submit four pieces of their work to disciplinary panels that will evaluate those bits of con those contributions. So it's sort of like peer review in the sense that colleagues from other institutions sitting in a panel will read all these submissions and determine which ones are excellent and which ones are not. There's a first vetting within the institution. So the institution is the one that decides what is sent to the evaluation panels. The evaluation panels are then the ones that determine the actual excellence of individual research. They do this through a system of stars. Um, there is one star, two star, three star, and four star research. Essentially, four star research would be groundbreaking, fundamentally important research in an area. Three star research, three star research is excellent research um, that has international standing, et cetera, et cetera. One star research is decent research at the national level. And all of these are associated to different levels of funding. For example, in the previous uh, assessment, only three-star research was funded. If someone produced two-star research or one-star research that did not attract funding from the state. So that puts pressure on creating certain types of work that is again, internationally leading, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a couple of features about this form of quantification that are interesting and that have to do with these sort of collective spaces that we build. The first one is that it's a transformation of qualitative uh, characteristics of work into quantitative objects, into scores that characterize the work. There's also a reliance on something that is very similar to peer review. At the end of the day, how quality is evaluated is through a panel of peers that read every single output from the United Kingdom. And in theory, this is something that is decoupled from personnel management decisions. This is something that was built into the way these evaluations were designed in theory, whether you produce one star or four star research should not matter to how your career progresses within the institution. Of course, this is not the case. So how is it that this peculiar system transformed uh, the social sciences? I look in particular at four social sciences, anthropology, economics, politics and IR and sociology. And through a combination of lots of quantitative data that is compiled by scraping um, articles in Web of Science and sort of computational comparisons of abstracts of those articles, we can see how certain patterns of mobility in the United Kingdom are associated to uh, these sort of to, to changes that are tied to these evaluations. So in particular, what I do in the book is look at how mobility of scholars is associated to three measures. The first is how similar their work is to that of colleagues, how similar the department is to other departments in the field, and whether a scholar is included or not in one of these evaluations. If you are not included, that is a negative thing. It's a signal that your work is so bad that it shouldn't even be sent to the panels. So it's, it's an important measure of, of predictors of mobility. And what we find or what I found with these different uh, ways of measuring knowledge in the UK is that there is strong evidence to suggest that 
scholars who are very redundant within their institutions, who are replicating, in a sense, the work of others, tend to move to different institutions more than those that are atypical. And institutions that are at the fringes or scholars that are at the fringes of the institutional space tend to move also uh, more often than those who are in very typical departments. So if you're in a standard department, you would move less than if you're in a sort of uh, very innovative but fringy department. There was actually a really nice case of this, which is tragic in many ways, and it has to do with the closure of one of the key departments that was foundational to a lot of social theory in the United Kingdom, the sort of the, the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies in Birmingham, which was closed because of its poor performance in breath. This is a center that gave us scholars like Stuart Hall, for example, that was seen as inadequate because it wasn't, again, in this center, the sweet point of, of typicality, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, what we're seeing over time is that disciplines in the UK, sociology, anthropology, politics, and economics are becoming more similar. Everyone in every single department is starting to do more similar work. D departments are becoming more typical. They're all converging onto the same model, which is something that speaks to less innovation and less risk-taking within the field and less rewards or fewer rewards for risk-taking and innovation for scholars. And this is also something that traces back to how people talk, the concepts that they use in their papers, their articles. Uh, looking at the similarity of concepts over time, we see that they become more and more similar, that there is a convergence in how social scientists talk about the world. It's not only that they look alike institutionally, more today than that they did, 20, 30 years ago, they also speak in more similar ways. They write in more similar ways. So the concept of social class, for example, which used to have very um, different understandings within the literature in Britain, has now sort of converged to the same type of Bordeauxian understanding that is the one that dominates the field. So again, it's a convergence in meaning rather than uh, diversity in, in scholarship. So what we find, in a sense, is this evidence of decreasing uh, diversity in the field. And again, this is something that is associated to, well, perhaps worse social sciences or less interesting, less innovative, less responsive social sciences. Now, the question is, why does this happen? What motivates scholars to shift their research, to change careers, to move institutions in these ways uh, towards homogeneity? And this is where we can find three interesting reasons that have to do with the incentives and indeed with the vocation of scholars in, in general. The first is that these disciplines are built in a very interesting way. They are, at the end of the day, about disciplining exercise. These exercises of evaluation are about identifying excellence, which is tied to the idea of what is a discipline. And a lot of this disciplining doesn't happen at the level of the state, it happens at the level of one's own institution. Within uh, discussions that are had with the head of department or the chair in the US and with colleagues within one's department. The other thing, of course, is that these evaluations, because they look like peer review 
echo a lot of the uh, logics of our vocation. They're not contested because people see them as just an, a logical extension of what they do in their everyday life. And of course, they're also increasingly bootstrapped to notions of value that are then carried across or over by both administrators and managers and academics themselves, and that speak to their obligations or perceived obligations of producing excellent research as public employees. And this is what keeps these evaluations from being challenged, from being dismantled in a way. And they go down to very simple things like, for example, the way uh, scholars are assessed internally by their departments. So this is a form that um, we received in the last evaluation in 2014, where we had to describe essentially how our research fit within sociology broadly. And this was something that was increasingly tied or at the time became tied to promotion, evaluation, et cetera, et cetera. These mock assessments, these trials before the actual quantification are things that have become part of the cultures of worth within the sector and that make changes more difficult. Of course, there's another story or another reason why these evaluations are so predominant, which is that they are things that reify or continue to protect high status departments and that really only affect those in the middle and bottom of the hierarchies of status in the UK. So if you're in a high status institution or if you're a high status discipline, like for example, economics, the, these evaluations don't actually matter. You do not experience, experience them in any way. However, for those working in the vast majority of institutions, which are not at the pinnacle of the sort of hierarchy, these evaluations become a source of constant anxiety in their everyday lives. So what are the conclusions of the book? What are some of the things we can try to take away? Part of it is that quantification has effects and has these sort of potentially negative effects on how we make knowledge, but it also has those effects because of how it mirrors a lot of these ideas of status, prestige, vocation within academia. So in a sense, the problem is never quantification in and of itself, but rather the vocations and the affinities that we have that give it teeth, that make it powerful in a sense. And in this sense, I think it's, it's good to see more sort of movement in the UK in terms of strikes and mobilizations, because it's a good moment to rethink the type of vocations that we have in academia away from a more individualistic idea of worth merit and prestige and onto more collaborative collective forms of knowledge making. And that's really what I want to sort of take, do with a book in a sense and what the argument tries to get at, even if it goes through this detour of a lot of computational models. But thank you, that's the idea that I wanted to sort of present. And yes, thank you very much. Cool. Thank you so much, JP. Ruben, I'd like to turn it over to you if you want to maybe elaborate on my brief introduction of you and then uh, feel free to jump in with your, your comments. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I don't have much more to say about myself, uh, but I am very much interested in what uh, Juan Pablo is researching. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate him for taking uh, what I would consider a kind of a big picture approach. Uh, to what is happening in terms of higher education 
and the use of metrics uh, to really transform what's going on. What the, you know, the underlying subtext, so the subtext for me uh, is that we have a conservative movement tied to neoliberalism, economic uh, neoliberalism, which is seeking to bring about change and to transform higher education. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, necessarily the vision is to make it the uh, servant of industry, but it certainly uh, wants to push it in that direction, uh, which I think transformed the mission of the university, which uh, Edward Said says, you know, is, as scholars were to promote the notion of freedom and also to generate new knowledge. Uh, and the notion of freedom really uh, entails us thinking critically about society uh, and the possibilities of freedom for everybody else, the much more just society than we have. So I think what we have here is yet again, another use of a stealth mode technique, if you will. I mean, uh, in terms of its underlying premises, and that is to use metrics as a tool of change. Uh, I have seen uh, the idea of performance-based funding, which is being used here in the United States, as a way to also bring about more convergence in terms of the transformation of higher education. Uh, I really like the kinds of impl implications that you have brought up, uh, the shifts in topics. I mean, just think about, you know, the Center for Cultural Studies, the work of Stuart Hall and his colleagues. I mean, that has been one of the most promising areas of study, uh, at least in sociology, cultural studies, and so forth. And I can certainly see why they would not want to fund it, right? Because it, it, it hinges on critical work that promotes freedom, that seeks to promote freedom. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I wish you would talk a little bit more about is really the, the loss of the big picture scholarship. That is, what, what are the trends in society that are lost when we do this bean counting kind of work uh, that really uh, covers up and hides the kind of barriers to freedom uh, that are actually taking place? I'm concerned, you know, all the time about how uh, legislators are imposing metrics on us, you know, accountability, all of this kind of stuff. And yet the kinds of measures that they get through Congress are never based on evidence-based rationales. There's never any metrics to see if their uh, acts, legislative acts uh, or policies actually lead to anything meaningful uh, in terms of society, so uh, that you know, I see this as a, a as a, uh, a a political movement that seeks to to subordinate the academy uh, to the demands of the economy and whatever conservative politicians have in mind. And the sad thing of it is that even liberals, you know, in order to maintain positions of power, have been co-opted into some of this. And and so here in the United States, we might be seeing a little bit of a change in that. Uh, but I'm really concerned about the direction that this is taking place. And I'm concerned that senior faculty here in the United States have not stood up more. You know, they have uh, these uh, pressures have forced us to keep our noses to the grindstone. But we haven't mentored the younger faculty into what the true mission of the academy is and what shared governance is. I mean, I'm always complaining about the fact that shared governance is disappearing rapidly. You know, 30 years ago, I was president of a faculty assembly 
uh, and was very active in, in ensuring that faculty had a voice. We even had a budget committee that the chancellor would have to meet with and we would uh, negotiate over you know, the investments and so on. Uh, all of that is gone now in, in terms of where the universities that I've been to in the last 20 years. Uh, so I think it's a, it's, it's a fundamental transformation of higher education. And I would hope that you would be able to speak a little bit more in your book about you know, the, 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 the change. Uh, I like the fact that you're pushing the, you know, the conversions, the standardization that is taking place. I mean, that is critical. And in fact, uh, is diminishing you know, the time that we as scholars have for thinking deeply about issues, right? You know, knowledge does not come through a series of empirical studies and somehow add up to something big. We, have, we need time to contemplate, you know, not only the works of others, but, but uh, uh, the, the theories, the frames, the trends and so forth to be able to yield something meaningful uh, for, for humanity. Really, that's what we're talking about, right? And I would hope that, uh, uh, that senior faculty would step up a little bit more and say to their younger colleagues, you know, this isn't the way that it used to be. You know, it all, it, as some colleagues have said, you know, it never was a great university. Yes, I know, <laughs> nothing is absolutely ever great, uh, but I would say we're moving in the wrong direction and I would hope that we would encourage young people um, and much like Zach has you know, uh, listened to us, <laughs> uh, to Frank and me, you know, go on about these kinds of things and, and, and we're so pleased that he and others are, are also listening, but it, it's very, very important that, you know, you talked a little bit about resistance that we also consider the forms of resistance uh, that can actually take place and where those cracks uh, and crevices are in this, what really seems to me a, a hegemonic movement uh, to transform higher education. And so I applaud you. I mean, I, I really uh, look forward to reading your book and to uh, seeing other works as well, being able to take big picture perspectives uh, on what is really taking on here. So thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you so much, Ruben. I mean, those are super kind words. And, and I think that I mean, I, I agree completely with the fact that big picture research is getting lost. So it, it's getting lost in terms of both the genre. So for example, books in the UK at least are not things you publish because they're one output and you don't want to put all your eggs into one like single thing. So people tend to write more articles, which reduces to some extent the ability to tell these, these types of stories. And stories that really go into specific types of details that are difficult to explore in an article. So it's changed the genre of communication for, for certain disciplines. And of course, if it's, if it's not seen as a more technical contribution to the field, then it's going to be penalized by these panels of peers. Um, and often what happens there, and this is, this is something that is much more anecdotal in a sense, is that the voices that get amplified by that are not the ones in the middle of the distribution. So they're not the ones in the universities that are really struggling with funding, with sort of more student stress, with lower ratios of faculty to staff. Uh, they're the ones that come from more well-funded universities that have the ability to give their scholars this slack to do these big picture ideas. So we, we hear like these big picture ideas from the elite, not from, from the middle in a sense. And that is, that is a fundamental problem also in how this is changing the role of social sciences today in, in terms of the public sphere, because the stories that are being told are not necessarily 
the stories that need to be told because they're coming from institutions that tend to have very specific um, systems of reward and protections for scholars that isolate them to some extent from, from what is happening in to the vast majority of their colleagues. So that's one thing that these evaluations or these metrics and systems of reward also, also introduce. And fighting them is really something that we need to internalize in, in every single um, sort of act we do from being peer reviewers. So, so acting as peer reviewers and thinking, thinking that we need to control and behave as gatekeepers always because that's the way actual true strong knowledge is built is a way of in a sense contributing to these logics of of metrics and of publishing for the sake of publishing how we review files for colleagues in our department that's another big thing if we expect everyone to be super productive and we don't sort of build in some slack and generosity and solidarity in terms of things that happen in life some projects just take longer than others, et cetera, et cetera. We are part of the system in the same way as these metrics, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really about trying to find these moments where we can intervene with solidarity and, and say, um, we're not here to block you, we're here to help you rather than to protect this thing, the discipline that doesn't ultimately matter at all. Right. I'm wondering, too, if, if the critical spirit of our work, particularly in the social sciences, is being eased out, if you will. And it would be really interesting to see what kind of studies really are the, the ones that are getting the investments, right? Yeah. Uh, and what implications those topics and that type of research, uh, what the implications are for uh, the work of scholars as a whole, right? Yeah. And, and I don't know if you're looking topically at some of these things as out as outcomes, and I'd be very interested in knowing if if you are. So I think one of the really so the best example of that is economics. I mean, economics is the one that suffered the most transformations from this, um, and I think it's economics serves as a good uh, sort of measure for what might happen in other fields because it's also the discipline that a lot of uh, managers look at as this is how everyone else should do things. And, and for example, British economics was really diverse back in the 1980s. So you had sort of departments that were very heterodox and they were in some of the very prestigious institutions, even though they weren't at the top of their sort of disciplinary hierarchy, but there was diversity in econ in the UK and it suddenly collapsed in the 1990s. And the concerns that they were working on shifted dramatically towards things like finance, macro, et cetera, et cetera, which are important, yes, but they sort of killed all the other traditions that were associated to these heterodox um, sort of departments and scholars that were disbanded because of the ref, because they were no, they were not really contributing to those institutions in terms of income due to their research, because it was heterodox research and people thought that they were outliers. So this is definitely changing our ability to be critical because a lot of critical scholarship is also scholarship that occurs at the sort of at the boundaries with other literatures. So 
a lot of critical perspectives on the world come from saying, well, I'm going to engage with these authors that have nothing to do with our traditions. And that's also something that tends to be penalized. So if you try to do um, discussions about class in a way that speaks against or that engages with forms of knowledge that come from different disciplines, then that might not be as well received, even though it might be more critical and more policy relevant or practically relevant than other types of analyses. And I think that that's a, a key problem in how these metrics are making these disciplinary logics stronger. So instead of, instead of creating those opportunities for research that is breaking boundaries, it's just making disciplines more uh, cohesive and stronger and, and the things that you have to actually pursue in order to build a career. And sometimes disciplines just aren't critical in the right ways. Right, and you know, I'm also concerned about one of the implications that you raised, and that is that what's happening is that we're reproducing, these processes are reproducing uh, the stratification of higher education. And to me, those are, uh, that's contrary to the values of democracy in the sense that we want to give people, you know, even if they were born into poverty, they may have great, great imaginations and great talents that we simply, society will not be able to, to, to harvest uh, the talent of those individuals, basically because of these structures that are being created in this way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the... The thing with the modes of quantification that we have today is that they focus, so they reproduce a lot of this, this idea of merit, um, of, of sort of the, the way things are organized as being natural rather than questioning that. So focusing on, on citations, for example, when is, is sort of absurd because we have a lot of studies showing that citations are predicted by the resources of an institution. So if you're at a research uh, rich institution, then you're likely to get more citations than if you're at a sort of poorer institution. Uh, but we still see citations as uh, indicators of individual merits from the scientists and are incapable or unwilling maybe to detach these and question how all these metrics are just contributing to the reproduction of these, of these, of these forms of status in our fields and in, in other fields. And, and that's, that's something that is also, that we can break away from in a sense. So there's no reason why we couldn't have other metrics. So this is going to one of the the, the questions that you had also posed, why, why we, can we can't develop other forms of metrics that speak to the type of academia that we want, to, we want to build. Citations might not be what we are focusing on, but for example, in tenure and review files, having a lot of citations weighs more heavily than having lots of link with local, or, local organizations. So if you do a lot of work with local, local organizations in many departments, that's seen as service and that's nice and cute, but it's not the same as having a paper in AJS, for instance, just to mention a sort of random 
journal. So, so that that balance is all about what we decide to see as worthy, and and again, and and that's something that we do have control over to some extent, and that we can try to change in how we value the work of others, and and yeah. And it seems like, you know, the the unspoken part here too is how the values of the dominant group continue to be the standard without them being brought out into the daylight for critical examination. I mean, I come out uh, from Chicano studies and you know, I remember the days when uh, it was a constant, we were constantly being told that the work that we did wasn't real research, right? Well, these communities have completely different kinds of needs and they have completely different uh, interests in the research that needs to be done uh, for those communities. You know, instead of just being ivory towers, uh, for them, they have to be, uh, uh, you know, universities and academies that actually address the kinds of needs that they have. So there's a sort of universal element that is being presented by the dominant group as if this is the, the best way, uh, but it, race, it basically erases the rest of us uh, in terms, and our communities in terms of this kind of research and the way that it is valued, you know, because, you know, the, the evaluations are always built on some kind of frame <laughs> that does not resonate with the needs of these communities. And then lastly, you know, I think we need to look very critically at the construction of austerity, you know, because, you know, you mentioned the word natural, you know, and, and some folks uh, tend to think that austerity is just a natural evolution of society or something. And it's not, it's a construction by power elites or, you know, whatever uh, types of folks that are out there. And I think, you know, and this will be my last comment. I think these are some of the issues that we need to, to look at critically uh, and, and see where we're going. Yeah, completely. I mean, the, the economics of higher education is completely wrong in many ways. I mean, in the, in the UK, this, this exercise costs something like 250 million pounds to, to develop because they have to, you have to hire staff within institutions, there's time associated to that. You have to pay sort of government folks who are processing these things. It's a very expensive exercise. Uh, and that's money that could go to institutions for other things. Um, and that is actually contributing to this sense of austerity because it's being used in, in the wrong way. And this is also what I, what I love to tell my students. We have never been in a more affluent moment in history. There has never been so much wealth in the world as there is today. The problem is not austerity, the problem is distribution. And universities today, every single university in the United Kingdom could be much better off than what it is today if the United Kingdom got its sort of fiscal policy uh, correct. Um, and, and this is completely a made up crisis. Uh, but that's where we, we really need to um, fight back in a sense or to do things to try to change also these logics of, of austerity. And it goes all the way from the way funding is granted by state or not increasingly to the way we think about developments on our campuses, uh, the sort of weight that that is that 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 has on students. Um, it's all those different things where we have maybe some voice, even though that voice is dwindling with the dwindling of, of sort of shared governance, but where we still have something to say. Thank you for your work, Juan Pablo. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ruben.
Um, okay, so we have uh, we have Frank and John also here in the in the Zoom room, and I'm not sure if either of you guys had questions for Juan Pablo, or um, I, I'd be happy to I'd be happy to offer a couple questions as well. Um, you know, I think that I've been so interested, sort of, in in hearing this like big picture take, um, partly because my obsession with academic metrics came very much from like a sort of personal and like subjectivity kind of perspective. Um, and I'm curious about maybe some of the, the interrelationships between those things. So for example, uh, in, and it's so funny you bring up this like idea of sort of interdisciplinarity or like critical work sort of operating at the boundaries of disciplines uh, and those things tending to be punished or at least not rewarded in the same way. Um, I'm uh, finishing a manuscript right now that is is uh, sort of doing some of that work and it has been tremendously uh, difficult, really. And so I really appreciate your, your words about this. But I'm curious, in terms of thinking about like the way scholars internalize some of those bigger picture developments that you're talking about, do you see or might you speculate that there's a tendency, especially amongst like junior scholars, to kind of internalize some of these ideas and almost do like SEO for their own work within the work itself. Like when you're writing an abstract for something or like when you're citing someone, you know, do you cite someone who already has more citations who's saying something similar to somebody else who has fewer citations because your work might then be linked to more things on, I don't know, you know, whatever platform you might, you know, tend to. So I'm, I'm curious about that sort of like interlinking between these big picture issues and sort of this like subjectivity of the academic themselves. So yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm gonna share this slide, which is uh, an interview with a political scientist in the UK in, re in relation to this, and sort of talking about the ref and the incentives and whether it would change the way they, they think about their, their craft. So one of the interesting things is that no one said, yes, I design every single project thinking about the ref. No one said that. Um, everyone had the ref in the back of their minds, but no one explicitly said that. But this one in particular, Peter did mention that he tries to sort of target first the American journals, which are the high status journals in political science. And sometimes that requires changing some things or exposing yourself to different views, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that might have some consequences on your scholarship. So there's, there is some degree to which junior scholars, he's a junior scholar, he's like 10 years out or five years out of his PhD, they do think about this need to comply with the expectations of REF, at least in the sense of submitting to the top American journal in your field. And that does shift the way they think about their, their production slowly over time. So after a while, they start seeing these things as natural, as, well, they're shifting me in certain directions, so I, I should start changing who I cite. There's also a lot of um, evidence in the um, science of science literature that the way people cite in order to make their papers um, publishable, for example, does also speak to these 
types of, of logic. So for example, when a, an annual review comes out, people tend to cite that annual review, which is all about discipline rather than those that are cited within the annual review. So that means that even though you are contributing to something and you're identified by the authors of an annual review article as being important to the discipline, your work gets cited less than that annual review. So people just go to that in order to sort of build their articles and arguments. And that means that there's this funneling of knowledge in, in a sense towards uh, high citation scholars and also towards uh, certain types of articles that constrain what we can see. Um, there's also a paper, I think it's not a paper, it's a presentation I saw once that, that even identifies things like Google Scholar as a problem. So when you, when you're writing a paper and the reviewer or reviewer B or two says, you should cite more X, Y, and Z. The first thing you do is you go onto Google Scholar and you, you search for X, Y, and Z. And the problem is that these results are ranked in terms of citations generally, or something that is close to citations. And people tend to go with those at the top. So there's now increasing evidence that things like Google Scholar means that if you're at the top of a search result, you'll get more citations, not because people are engaging with your work, but because you're at the top of the search results. So there's a lot of this like SEO optimization that goes on and how people work, how people write. And that is changing these, the nature of scholarship in, in very fundamental ways. And there's also, of course, the idea of how the sort of constant anxiety of producing enough, um, even though it doesn't necessarily matter in the larger scheme of things. There's also this very um, sort of interesting result that the the number of articles that incoming assistant professors have for top 20 departments has doubled in the last 20 years or something like that. It would be great if that were correlated to a halving of sort of inequality and strife in the world, but it isn't. So we produce more and yet the world is still fundamentally unequal and problematic. So it's not like the work that we produce is changing a lot of things. Uh, it's great, it's important, but it's maybe not hitting what we want it to hit. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to like a core concern of my work in general. Um, and I think this is a significant place where our, our work intersects is the question of the proxy for the thing becoming the thing that we aim for as opposed to the thing itself, right? Like. I, it, I mean, it's sort of philosophical, but like Willem Flusser, you know, talks about this idea of the inversion of the vector of signification when like the passport number becomes the thing that the person represents as opposed to the other way around, right? Like that idea um, is, and so I, I guess perhaps uh, a more optimistic question for you would be maybe a, a question a little bit about um, Cybersyn in Chile. And, and this question of, uh, so like Cybersyn was like this sort of socialist cybernetics project, right? It was about like trying to sort of do a planned economy with a kind of different, uh, fundamentally different sort of political calculus behind it. Do you think that 
or are there ways to sort of reimagine metrics uh, that we can engage in now? Are there practices that we can sort of do within the system we're living in or are or would any sort of attempt at doing that end up being sort of co-opted and eaten by the broader political economic system that we're living in like you you know what i mean like i think you sort of pointed towards this idea that maybe we can use quantification in a much more judicious and perhaps optimistic fashion uh, is it possible to do that now or do we really need to like sort of blow it up and then do that. <laughs> so that, that's where it's, it's really tricky. So one of the things that quantification is really good at is that it does break, at least initially, certain forms of, of power and structures that have been there without being questioned. So the metrics in the UK, for example, were really important in the 1980s and early 90s in making the work of minority and women scholars visible. So this is something that was great because they could now get poached by high status departments because they were really productive. So, so it made, it did transform and broke with these like Donish forms of academia that had existed in the UK for a long, long time. Then they get, became co-opted. And that's the problem with, with metrics that once you have a new game, it might produce some reductions in inequality, but then at some point, someone understands the rules of the game and starts exploiting them. So there has to be constant surveillance of the game itself in order to avoid it being co-opted. And, and that becomes the sort of eternal question of how to actually make sure that that doesn't happen, that it doesn't get co-opted because it's super difficult. But one example of a, an area where we do lack metrics and do we do lack ways of measuring effectiveness is in for example diversity efforts within institutions so one of the key problems that is emerging today for institutions that are trying to increase the diversity of students and faculty is you have these statements how do you compare them so so what constitutes a contribution to equity? What contributes a contribution to X, Y, a contribution to X, Y, and Z? Those things have been unquantified and no one has even sort of presented frameworks of maybe this is what we could do with a series of rubrics to X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that would be a form of quantification that would actually maybe provide more legitimacy to those types of efforts um, because they're often criticized as being opaque and being um, ill-guided, et cetera, et cetera, that might create transparency on how discussions are had. And it might also provide uh, targets on, this is what you should be doing. You should be making the classroom more accessible. You should, to, you should try to sort of rethink the way you present concepts so that it speaks to a wider audience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those different types of things that could be quantified. Of course, who knows, maybe 10 years after that is introduced, it will be sort of commercialized in a certain way that you will have an app that does all of that for you without actually contributing to diversity and equity. But, but initially it would be something important. So I guess there's this logic of always having to revisit what the metrics are doing 
and being very aware of why you're measuring things the way you are so that the metric doesn't become the target. Right. Yeah, and perhaps that speaks a little bit to like who determines or controls the commensurability of those metrics across institutions or whatever too, you know, like if, you know, the faculty in a given institution determined that, you know, DEI efforts are going to be sort of valorized and measured in a particular way, and we're going to check back in on that every five years, you know, that I think has less possibility to be sort of co-opted than like a top-down sort of uh, inter-institutional measure or yeah. something that goes across institutions. Um, yeah. You know, I, th I think that that idea of like democratic, and that goes back to what Ruben was saying too, like that idea of like democratic determination of our direction as faculty could include like the development or rejection of particular, you know, metrics from a from a faculty senate or faculty, you know, whatever you want to call it, but senate yeah. union kind of perspective. Yeah, exactly. Cool, cool. Um, Frank, did you have any did you have any questions or anything you wanted to offer as well? I feel like uh, I've been dominating yeah. here. Well, you know me, Zach. I always have things to offer. <laughs> Whether they're of value is is debatable. Um, first of all, thank you for hosting this. And JP, what a tremendous, uh, not only a great presentation, very thoughtful, but uh, terrific research on a very important subject. Um, I'm the oldest one in the room, <laughs> literally. And um, if you had, if I had viewed this video 30 years ago, I thought it would be, well, that's science fiction. Higher education can't be this. Um, and so uh, one of the things I always used to teach my students was when there is a what question on the table, ask the why question first. Uh, and what's interesting to me is when you ask the why question with respect to what JP has researched, the immediate response, I think the general public would say this too, is accountability. We need more accountability uh, of professionals, from professionals, and also institutions. But if you, and I always have to say this to students, you need to scratch that a bit. Go, keep on going. It's layered. It doesn't take much scratching to get to the next layer, which is very simply this. Faculty and their scholarship represent a threat. It represents a threat to the system. And what higher education has been duped into, and, the, and I really do mean duped, is that somehow, some way, the way for transformational change is for key academic leaders to get behind a podium and declare there will be a national movement to accomplish X or Y or Z. And I participated in multiple ones of those. One that comes to mind, uh, which got an awful lot of play in the, in the 1990s was um, what was called from teaching to learning. That teaching, when we think about teaching as a focus, just like the metric. If you focus on teaching, the unit of analysis is the teacher. If you focus on learning, the unit of analysis is the student. So let's shift our undergraduate programs in particular from a teaching motif centrally to a learning motif, and it will change everything. Well, what happens all the time is after the speeches, after the conferences, after all of that, 
Uh, the institution, which is increasingly a neoliberal institution, cherry picks the ideas from the yeastiness to be able to enliven, enrich, and sustain neoliberalism. Faculty members are a threat. Faculty scholarship is a threat. So in the name of accountability, what we'll do is we'll control faculty by specifying the outcomes to which they uh, will have to conform if they want to be able to keep their job, increase their salaries, uh, move up the system. And you mentioned a very important word, extremely two important words, JP. One is heterodox. When I was starting my academic career, the academy was a heterodox. Yes, there was convention. Yes, um, there, but it wasn't one size fits all. And the driving question was, are you doing a really good job on the pathway that you have identified as your program of scholarship, okay? That, that is extremely important and it's been lost. The academy is increasingly or less likely to be a heterodox today, particularly the R1 institutions in the US. The other word you used is disciplining. And that's a wonderful word because it can be used uh, not just to describe the it, the discipline, but the disciplining that goes on to, to increase the prospects that faculty will be forced to conform. And what I found, um, both as a faculty member and as an administrator would go back and forth, is that I found myself in my administrative career at the end, finding myself having to enforce, I'm using that word, uh, very specifically, enforce rules that I, I, I found increasingly wrong, regrettable. And then the question is, where do you find yourself? And knowing that you don't believe in this, and in fact, you made, <laughs> irony, you made your career in a very different way. Um, and so what's really important, I think, about JP's work is that what the neoliberals, and that's not just within higher education, the board members, um, the business leaders, the donors, and so on. What they don't want is for the game to be called out. They don't want it to be named. Uh, they don't want it to be disdained. Uh, and what they want is for people to accept the system that without the fanfare of the national movement um, has not only persisted, but now it has higher education in a chokehold. That's the issue. And so I think one of the reasons we started and continue to do uh, Future You is exactly for that purpose, is that we, we will not accept this as business as usual, even though it is. We will proclaim it, we will disdain it, and then we will communicate alternatives to, to it. How far that goes is anybody's guess. But um, that's why your being here today, I think is, I don't think, I know, uh, JP is so important because this work, uh, very done very carefully, well-researched, as you say, laboratory-like, focusing on Britain, lays it all out. And so I'll close with this. I sometimes say to myself, okay, what, what the state of Michigan could really use is a state board because you have schools engaging in a lot of redundancy. How many schools of social work and nursing, education, et cetera, et cetera, do we need in Michigan? Because we don't have a state board. 
And then I hear what, how you describe what's happening in Britain. And also in my other adopted state of Florida, there is a state board and they do exactly what, what uh, you described in Great Britain. In other words, they lay out standards that you must conform to. And they not only make an initial allocation, they make an interim allocation, and then they rank the universities in terms of how they measure up. And then there, there are presidents and provosts who are probably um, not drinking caffeinated coffee the day that, that the um, results come out because their blood pressure is probably already sky high because you don't wanna be at the bottom of that list. So I'll stop there and just say that this is extremely important. Uh, and like always, faculty will listen and watch and they will say, well, yeah, the folks who need to watch this are the provosts, the associate provosts, the deans, and then go quickly to a mirror. And my fear is it's because they support this, not that they don't support it. But what it's doing is, is as Ruben said, um, it's subverting the fundamental purpose of higher education. And as colleagues uh, have said and written, it's academic repression, it's academic suppression. And you can take each or either of those words and run with it. Very troubling. So thank you. Sorry for the, the monologue, but um, I got going. <laughs> No, no, but that was that was terrific. Thank you so much. And I think that it's it's completely on point because the the fact is that we could build there are other ways of of creating an academia that would be more socially responsive, responsive, responsible, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of this happens because the very high up management of higher education throughout the world is increasingly decoupled and disconnected from from what academics can do and can contribute to their institutions. There is no interest in an institution producing boring research that is predictable just because it gets citations. That makes no sense. That's the worst use of money uh, you can think of. Um, citations are cheap, they're useless. They don't really say anything about the quality of, of scholarship. And there are numerous faculty throughout the world and in different institutions that could contribute to change the way they're managed in a way that would actually speak to the interests of upper management, but they're seen as the enemy. Um, they're seen as either employees who should just follow orders or the enemy in some fundamental respect. And, and that's hugely problematic. So, so hopefully, hopefully these conversations uh, contribute something to. And one of the things that I think is really important, JP, and for all of us, those viewing too, um, if I were converting this to a newspaper headline, um, it would be um, the quantified scholar, obviously, as the lead concept, but it would be neoliberalism has won, or at the very least, neoliber neoliberalism is winning. If you think about the folks who are serving on boards, if you think about the folks who are giving big money to universities, these are, for the most part, neoliberal corporatists, uh, and they and there is a certain they have we as we as the, we all do, they have a way of, of valuing, affirming, believing, and what they're doing increasingly so is imposing that way on the nonprofit and public sector, so that we have to measure up to their way their metrics. We have to measure up to their metrics, 
And many of them suffer from what I call the clean house syndrome, that it's better to be able to evaluate across the board easily and understandably and simply. So in the nonprofit sector, evaluated by how much money you bring in. It's a simple metric. Uh, when I was president of a food bank, we used a multiple that how much money did you bring in and how did that translate into the produce that into the food that was uh, purchased that then went out to people in hunger. And so if you had a seven to one multiple, you were doing really great. Um, and so as a consequence, everything gets reduced uh, to this neoliberal mindset that is that wasn't in higher education uh, in a significant way until the 90s. And the irony of it is, when I was growing up in the academy, we used transformation to mean the, the change essentially in the way one thinks and behaves acts. It was a transformation. But the way it's worked out is the transformation is not that. It's an imposed way of thinking on people that requires their conformance so that institutions uh, impose this uh, using a neoliberal frame of reference. And it's what, I, what I'm just surprised at, and I think it maybe I'm not, shouldn't be surprised, it's been around for so long that it's been so internalized by so many people that people who otherwise view themselves as progressives will start talking about, well, that's the right thing to do, and you shake your head. Um, it's a very, it, to me, this is one of the most serious things going. This happens to be about higher education, but the larger dynamic, there's a larger dynamic here, and it's pervasive across institutions, organizations, and individuals. Yeah, I've been surprised. I guess, I mean, JP, maybe uh, before I turn it over to you for your, your final sort of thoughts, I, I, I wanted to ask, I've, I've been surprised at the uh, like challenges around talking about, for example, scholarly metrics with colleagues where one might assume perhaps more solidarity in opposing the tyranny of these metrics than, than, than there actually is. And, and like, I wonder, I don't know, JP, do you have talking points? Like, how do you, like, how do you talk about this with people? Are there ways that you have conversations, particularly, I don't know, like with data, I don't know if you, you know, like see those data science people anymore, but like, you know, I think there are, uh, like Frank was saying, people who are ostensibly left and like really left who I think still have some, and I, I don't want to like get into like, maybe it's not a false consciousness kind of like thing. I'm not trying to like, you know, say that necessarily, but I think there are like some real issues around solidarity when it comes to uh, the way we're evaluated. So I think there's like two things that conspire in making those discussions about solidarity way more difficult. So one is, um, and this is what Weber got completely right in his, um, the scholar's vocation, is this idea that, that what we're doing is for knowledge itself in a sense, and it's, it's there. That is, that is our vocation to produce knowledge. Everything else is sort of tainting that in some fundamental way. And the other one is this idea that we're all there because of meritocracy and individual um, work 
And a lot of people drink that Kool-Aid. And once they drink that Kool-Aid, they think that the best proxy for that are all these metrics. So they become really attached to these metrics because they speak to their vocation and they speak to their idea of merit. And those, I mean, merit has been one of the key things that has really um, fueled this growth of inequality in the last few decades, or ideas of merit have, have been central to this really profound um, erosion of the social because it's all about the individual. And sort of the, the, the talking points are always, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't have a magic formula. If I did, I would write a different book on this is how you deconstruct merit for your colleagues. But I think that reminding people of the moments when something happened out of luck, sheer luck is really critical. Because again, that's where a lot of academia comes from. It's a lot of hard work, but it's also a bunch of luck. Um, so reminding people of that and then telling them, because you're essentially lucky, it's not that you're better than anyone else, you're just lucky. Maybe that's something that you might want to think about when you're evaluating others. Awesome. Um, well, we are pretty close to our, our time here. So uh, JP, are there any sort of final sort of closing thoughts uh, that you wanted to offer those watching? No, I mean, just thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I hope it was fun. It was tremendously fun for me. Uh, thank you for the space, for the questions, for the comments. Uh, thank you so much. Awesome. And uh, thanks to uh, those uh, who participated in our little Zoom room. Thanks to Frank and Ruben uh, for their questions and comments. JP, of course, thank you to you uh, for your work and for your contribution to our, our humble forum that we, that we have. Um, and thanks to those at home and wherever you might be watching on YouTube. Um, this is our last forum of the semester. And in the spring, uh, we'll have a bunch more. Topics will be posted uh, at the Future U homepage. So uh, do check us out. Our website is futureu.education. That's future and then the letter u.education. Um, so thanks everybody for being here and uh, wishing everyone a, a safe, healthy, and restful winter break.